We're combining all the best old school wisdom with all the top new school methods to bring you the optimal way to coach and play the great game of baseball. This is the 80-20 Baseball Masterclass with Coach Bo. Welcome, everyone, to this week's episode, episode 72, our weekly get-together, where we discuss how to be better coaches, how to get more out of our teams, and how to have more fun along the way. Quick side note, I am fired up. I got a microphone set up that I think is better than ever. And last week, my Blue Yeti microphone, the microphone that I've been using for all of the episodes, it's a highly recommended, high quality microphone, but I guess it's having some issues with the new Mac operating, or should I say the new Mac silicone chips, the M1 chip that I have in my Mac. So I couldn't use my microphone last week. I tried really hard to do everything I could to get it working but I just couldn't get the Blue Yeti. I emailed them, I contacted them, and they said they are having issues across the board with the new computers from Apple, the new silicone that Apple is using. And so I went ahead, I ordered a different microphone, a very highly rated microphone. I'm on it right now. But last week's episode, I recorded with my microphone, my wireless mic that I use for my videos. And it's a good mic, but it's a little different using it for podcast purposes. So I wasn't super good with holding it like I would a microphone. Usually I have mine on a boom. And so it was a little challenging. So last week, the microphone wasn't probably as good. We tried our best. I worked with Sam, my editor. We tried to get it pretty good. This week, not only do I have a new microphone, I found this software that you can download to your computer. And some of you might already know about it called Crisp. It's K-R-I-S-P, K-R-I-S-P. They're not sponsoring the show. I just found Crisp when I was trying to find the problem I was having with my Blue Yeti microphone. And I came across this software. This software is really really cool. It is a software that cleans up all the audio that you do on your computer. So if you have Zoom meetings, some of you have Zoom meetings or you're on Skype or you're using WebEx, I believe is the Microsoft version of that. Or if you're doing other things like Google Meetup online, anything you do, uh, any calls you make through your computer, recordings, it cleans it up big time. I read the description on the website. I stumbled across it again. Somebody mentioned, hey, your microphone might not be working because X, Y, and Z. You can try this off. Option. This might help this crisp. So I downloaded it. I thought, okay, I checked the website, look legit. And needless to say, I've been very impressed with the quality that it helps to produce on these audio recordings, or at least the trial and test runs I've been doing this last week and so far on this episode. So crisp, if you don't have it, they have a free plan. They also have the $5 a month. It's five bucks a month and it's unlimited. To me, it's a no brainer moving forward for a lot of companies, a lot of just people that work on their computers a lot. The quality of your conversations, the quality of your audio, I can see a big difference from just the little bit that I've used it so far. So I'm excited. Got a new microphone. Now my Blue Yeti is my backup microphone, which is a good backup to have. And then my other backup backup is the one I used last week. And that's my video microphone. And I do take this serious. I want to invest into making a good quality product for you, whether it's the podcast or the website that's almost ready to relaunch my videos, the products that I've developed, the 8020 baseball drill mastery guide PDF that I developed that a lot of coaches have reached out and emailed me at coachbo at 8020baseball.com and have requested that. So I've really tried to put a lot of effort into not having myself spread out and doing a whole this, that, and the other. What I'm trying to do is put together a really good 8020 baseball masterclass. I'm trying to get this website relaunched and have a very condensed but quality amount of information and guide coaches in a very high quality manner. And so when I stumbled across this software, 
crisp. And this new microphone that I really like, it just fires me up because I think the quality of the show moving forward in this particular case, the quality of this podcast moving forward will be even better. And speaking of this 80-20 baseball masterclass, in this episode today, we're going to talk about a specific plan to handling umpires, specifically umpires we don't agree with their calls, maybe umpires we think are bad. We're going to talk about a specific plan to dealing with those. We're going to also discuss one component of the game that our team, our players can do that we can coach up that has the biggest impact on our team's success come game time. And I'm going to tie it together with what I've seen over the last few years in the playoffs for the Major League Baseball and the playoffs for Major League Baseball and what all the winningest teams in baseball are doing. What's the one thing that they're doing better than the other teams that we can utilize at the youth level in the same way to have that optimized success. And in the last part of this episode here, episode 72, this week's episode, the last part, I'm going to touch quickly on my thoughts on the wristbands that come coaches and teams and players use to share signs, to give their signs out. So instead of like touching your shoulders, your arms, swiping your chest, rubbing your legs, grabbing your belt, your hat and whatnot, the old school approach, this is something that is becoming more and more popular. It became popular years ago with catchers, pitching coaches calling the signs to the catcher. But now you're seeing it go to base running. You're seeing it with hitters, of course. You're even seeing pitchers that have these wristbands or these things that they can then look at the signs, right? there on a card that's either on a wristband or something on their belt. And I'm going to share with you my thoughts on that because I'm a huge fan of anything that makes the game more efficient and more accurate. I'm a big fan of anything in life that makes things more efficient and more accurate. That's a slam dunk. That's the winning combination in life. You can be more efficient and more accurate. That's the recipe for the winner, winner, chicken dinner all day, all night. So we're going to talk about that just really briefly at the very end. And with that said, let's get into it. Last night, yesterday, the season, of course, is just starting up for baseball. Major League Baseball is just starting up. And last night I had some free time, which is rare. And I sat down and I watched myself some baseball. The Colorado Rockies were playing the LA Dodgers. And a couple takeaways from the game. It was, I think, Fox Sports 1's game of the week. And a big takeaway one, man, these umpires have figured out how to call balls and strikes. If you ever watch old video or if you're old enough, like a lot of you have watched games from the long time ago when the strike zone was unpredictable. It could have been a foot outside, even at the major league level. It could have been a little below the knees. And I'll tell you what, these umpires, if you look at the statistics, they've actually analyzed this. I think it was like up until like 2018, there was like one umpire, one umpire who had a season and it doesn't go back super far, maybe like 2005 through 2018. There was like one umpire, one umpire who got 90% of the pitches called correctly. Yeah, you heard that. These are major league umpires. And one of them had a 90% basically one of them was an A grade umpire when it came to or when it comes to calling balls and strikes and last night when I was watching the game the umpire behind the plate he missed one call one call that was outside of the vertical rectangle and I'm not sure if that vertical rectangle is exactly where it's supposed to be but it looks pretty accurate right and he missed one call that was outside of that rectangle and I started watching the game in the fourth inning so he in in five innings say six innings five and a half innings he missed one that was outside he called one a strike 
bike that was looked a little bit outside, but it wasn't very far outside. I thought, wow, that's really, really great because how can you go 14 years or 13 years of, and how many thousands of tens of thousands of games that were umpired by MLB umpires that are getting paid good money? This is their profession. And only one of them ever had a grade of a 90% of accuracy or a 90% accuracy grade or a higher. I think it was like one. It may have been maybe a second. And I guess what happens is when they get told you're going to be replaced by, it's like Caddyshack. When you want to be replaced by golf carts, well, then you pick up your game. You start being a better caddy. Anybody that's watched Caddyshack knows that line. Hey, you guys want to keep messing around doing this, doing X, Y, and Z, you're going to be replaced by golf carts. Well, with umpires, I think the MLB said, hey, do you want to be replaced by the robo zone, the automatic strike zone, the technology, the computer strike zone, or do you want to keep your this part of the game as in your job description? And a lot of people don't know that statistic that umpires have been graded on their accuracy on balls and strikes for like 16 years or 15 years. And none of them up until like, I think it was like 2014, one umpire got it. And then in 2018, like six umpires had above a 90% accuracy. And then there was a massive jump in the last couple of years. Well, did umpires just all of a sudden get better vision? Did they all of a sudden get smarter? No, these are smart guys. They all, their vision did not get better. What I think it was, was they were told you're going to be replaced by the computer, get your thing together, get your act together. And they have, they have They're It's really great to see. It's not perfect. Now as youth coaches, those umpires are going to call pitches way outside, way low, way high, way inside. They're going to, they're going to miss calls at the bag. They're going to miss calls at second base. They're going to miss calls at first base. They're going to call a foul ball, a fair ball and a fair ball, a foul ball. It will always happen. And at youth baseball, when the umpires are getting paid with a bag of peanuts and a soda and maybe a chili billy from the snack bar after the game, don't expect it to be perfect. Stay cool. Don't worry about it unless you believe a rule was interpreted incorrectly, not was he safe? Was he out? You can always ask maybe for a second opinion from the other umpire. If you have, typically you're going to have two umpires, even at youth baseball games. If you have more than that, then you're very fortunate. Maybe you can ask another umpire for their input on that. But really when it comes down to dealing with the umpires, the only thing you really have control over as a coach is interpretation of rules. You can have a little bit of influence maybe by saying something polite to them or something like that, that might change their, their mind a little bit. Sure. You can do that. But when you're coaching, set a good example for your players. Don't argue everything. It will find its way through the year of evening out for the most part. It's not going to be perfect. Lower your expectations. Lower your expectations. This is something that there's a big difference between coaches and managers that have been doing it a long time and have been doing it for years. Those coaches know they go into the game knowing that umpires are going to make mistakes. You know, you see in the major leagues, you see in college baseball, even advanced high school, you see coaches not respond to a bad call that everybody in the stands, all the casual observers, not the experts in baseball, are all up in arms about a call that they thought was wrong, this, that, or the other. They didn't agree with it. And you'll see the coach stay rather calm. Not always sure. Coaches at all levels will run out there and scream and holler from time to time. But most coaches, the more advanced they get, the more higher up the levels they go, they stay more calm because they're expecting bad calls. And they're also taking the time instead of getting all hot and heavy, they're using that and all emotional. They're using that time, that split second, those few seconds after the call, instead of getting all heated, they're using that time to kind of run through a quick mental checklist, running through their database in their mind and asking themselves, is there something that I could present to the umpire that would change their mind? Not yelling, not telling them they're stupid or dumb or they missed the call, but is there something they can use within the rule book or by getting the help of 
of another umpire on scene to help make that call go in their favor or at least change the call. And most of the time, this is not going to happen. So two, two ways to handle umpires. You can, one, right after the call goes down that you don't maybe agree with initially or you don't agree with, you can ask yourself, is there something I can present, an argument I could present, a discussion I could present to the umpire that would change his mind based on evidence or a rule, not how loud can I yell or what I can call them in terms of bad words and things like that. That has no place in baseball and it has no place in youth baseball for sure. No place. You can go out there and you can change their mind by staying calm, walk up. The conversation you have should be with them close by so that if you say something that everybody in the park can hear, the umpire is going to know that everybody in the ballpark can hear what you just said. They will be less likely to change the call because now they know everybody around, including the other team and all the fans, know that you just yelled an order or told them to do something or told them that this is how the call should have gone. And now if they do change their call to your favor, they're going to also have the impression or the mindset that they caved in and, they're, and they're, they want to save face. So saving face is huge. It's huge with our players. If you want the umpire to change his mind, help him save face by keeping it casual and low key when you go talk to him. And two, don't go up there unless you have some evidence that can persuade the umpire to change the call. And the other thing, a big, big number one thing, number one thing. So this is the 80-20 of dealing with umpires. The biggest one is go into the game with low expectations of the umpires in terms of getting all the calls correct and this and that. They should treat the players kindly. They should be taking their job seriously, but they're not going to be perfect. So have lower expectations. Have lower expectations of the umpires going into your games. And then if something does not go the way you think it should, a call does not go the way you think it should, then your next step, okay, you started with low expectations and that helps just with blatant just bad calls that you actually can't do anything about because it's just a judgment call that they messed up on but then your next course of action if possible instead of getting all hot and heavy and screaming and hollering and getting all emotional about it ask yourself is there something in the rule book or is there an angle I could take is there an approach with a valid argument in a calm collected way can I present something to the umpire that would change their mind rather than just my opinion it's more what can you bring to the table in terms of the rule book to get them to change their mind. I've coached with some phenomenal coaches over the year and they've done this exceptionally well. It also keeps you from arguing every call. So the 80-20, really the 90-10 rule when it comes to dealing with umpires, start with low expectations of umpires coming into the game. Have high expectations for yourself. Have low expectations for everything around you. And it's just gonna help you be a little bit better because there's just so many things out of our control and this helps us stay more calm and collected when something doesn't go our way or when other people disappoint us. Lower the bar for other people. Raise the bar for yourself. I think that's just a great way to go through life, right? So the 90-10, low expectations, lower the bar for the umpires. Don't expect good calls. Expect them to make bad calls. Don't be surprised. In fact, when I see coaches that lose it when an umpire misses a call, I can tell they're rookie coaches or they haven't been around baseball very much or sports because the more you're around baseball and the more you're around sports, the experienced coaches, you want to look like an experienced coach. Keep your cool when the call doesn't go your way when it's a close call or a bang bang play because coaches that have been around the game a long time and coaches that show more 
maturity and experience, even youth coaches, those coaches that have been around are desensitized to bad calls. It doesn't fluster them because they're desensitized to it. They've been around it. They've seen it. They're expecting it. And so they know the only course of action is maybe using the rule book or the input from another umpire that's on the field. And then within the argument, or I should say within the dialogue with the umpire, you walk out there, you don't run out there, you walk out calm, and you want everybody in the ballpark to think you're just having a friendly conversation with them. But what you're trying to do in a calm and collected way, and a good thing to do here is also to turn and face away from the crowd and face out towards the field. Don't get in the umpire's face, kind of turn and face with him, whatever direction he's looking, kind of turn like you're working together. You're a team trying to get to a better answer on this call. Whatever you're trying to do to persuade them, you're trying to get them to join you. So don't get confrontational. Get Turn a little bit to the side. Talk calmly, but firmly if you need to. And you better, if you walk out there, if you're going to walk out ever to an umpire and talk about a bad call or a call you didn't agree with, it may have been a good call, but maybe you saw it different and maybe you're wrong. Maybe I was wrong. Some of these times I went out to the umpire and was talking to them about a call I thought they were wrong about, but really I was wrong until the slow motion video shows otherwise. Who knows sometimes? And when you go out there, you better have a concrete piece of evidence that you can present other than I disagree with you or I, I think that was a bad call. There needs to be some concrete evidence specifically from the rule book that can move the call into your favor. Or you know that if you ask an umpire that might have had a better view on the play, if they can come add to it. But if you go out there all hot and heavy yelling and screaming and hollering, don't expect that umpire at home plate or wherever first base to go talk to the umpire, the other umpire on the field and get them to. So he's going to walk over to them when you're not around. He's going to walk over and they're going to be out of earshot. And he's going to say, hey, I might have missed that call, but you're not overturning it. Just act like you agree with me. And we're just going to, you know, we're going to stick with the out call. This coach is out of line. He's, you know, he's why would another umpire undermine their partner, even if they're wrong, but when the coach is being a super big jerk about it because it sets a bad precedent? So my fellow coaches, expect bad calls from the umpire. Just expect it. It's going to happen. It's going to happen often. Those calls will typically, those calls that don't go your way, will typically come back and go your way. Not every bad call, no matter how much we think, is going against us every time. It's not. Let's just stay calm, expect bad calls. And when you get a call that does go against you, ask yourself, is there something I can present to the umpire that's going to change their mind? Something solid. And more often than not, this is not going to be the case. So move on, move on. All right, focus on your team, focus on the things within your control. And there you go. The other thing that stood out when I was watching the Rockies and Dodgers play, specifically the Dodgers, and this is something that really stood out to me when I was watching the playoffs last year. And anytime I watch great hitters, great Great hitters have a great approach at the plate. They know what pitches to swing at and what pitches not to swing at. Are they always going to be perfect? No, but you can see a stark difference between the good teams in Major League Baseball and their offenses swinging at good pitches and not swinging at pitches that are not good pitches. And we've talked about what good pitches are with less than two strikes. A pitch that hitters want to swing at is a pitch they can drive or hit hard. That may be a line drive one hopper, back up the middle. That may be a ball off the right center field wall. That may be a hit where they drive it just 400 feet. But the point is, it needs to be a ball that they can handle well and drive. And I think almost all hitters, even youth hitters, know when that pitch is coming, they can calculate really quick in those milliseconds, is this a pitch I can drive or not? And if not, they're going to learn by swinging at more pitches and honing their approach. Now with two strikes, the approach is to swing at good pitches, meaning pitches that are in the strike zone or on the fringe of the strike zone within a few 
inches. For youth baseball, the fringe might expand out six inches. And so with two strikes, those are the pitches that you're swinging at. Those are good pitches to swing at. Pitches that bounce on top of home plate are not within inches of the strike zone. It could be at the shin level, shin level, or even at the shoe level. That might be something where the catcher catches it just off the ground. That might be a pitch with two strikes you swing at, especially if it's a breaking ball or a changeup that really dies or a fastball that sinks. So the best offenses, and I'll tell you what, there may not be a stronger correlation between a team's success and one specific component of the team's game. And I'm talking fielding round balls, running the bases, offense, defense, hitting, pitching, all of it, catching fly balls. There may not be a bigger or stronger correlation to a team's success than swinging at the right pitches. And I just broke that down a little bit right now, but I've discussed at length the plan A and the plan to approach that hitters should have. In fact, we have covered that at length on this podcast because it to me is the biggest needle mover when it comes down to teams winning more games and having more success. Don't get me wrong. I'm a huge guy on pitching. I'm a huge pitching fan and I value pitching really high, but just above pitching, just above pitching. I think the biggest competitive advantage that's sitting out there for youth teams, for high school teams is swinging at better pitches, swinging at better pitches, not pitchers pitches, not just pitches that are strikes with less than two strikes. With less than two strikes, you're not just swinging at strikes. You're swinging at pitches that are usually in the strike zone, but pitches you can drive. That area is typically going to be like half of the strike zone. Look at somebody's, look at a player's heat map online and you'll see where it's very red, dark red, a little bit lighter red. That area, it typically is a third to half of the strike zone. And I'm not going to get into that too deep here because we have discussed that at length. So the Dodgers are just phenomenal, just phenomenal at swinging at the right pitches. And when you got pitches that are coming in, sliders, cutters, curveballs, changeups, fastballs coming in at 97 miles an hour, it's incredible that they don't swing at more pitches that they probably shouldn't and also take more pitches that they should probably swing at. So when you factor in the difficulty of hitting and the difficulty of hitting off of major league pitchers and the stuff some of these guys are throwing up there, it's pretty incredible that they have that much success and they're that accurate in their decision to swing or not swing. I think the biggest competitive advantage just sitting out there and it will be a big competitive advantage for years to come, I truly believe, years to come because it's so far from where it could be, is prioritizing what the big needle movers are, knowing what those are, and then coaching those up correctly and emphasizing those accurately and putting the time onto those big needle movers and the hitting approach may be the biggest, in my opinion right now, it's the biggest needle mover out there. And right below that, just right below that, barely below it, but definitely a, it's like 1A, 1B is pitching, command of pitches, throwing more than one pitch, or should I say at least a pitch to multiple locations with command and typically with a off-speed pitch mixed in there that they can command as well, if not a second off-speed pitch. A competitive pitcher that commands more than one pitch to multiple areas, that is 1B and 1A, I believe, is swinging at good pitches and not swinging at bad pitches because you're going to get walks out of it, but you're also going to crush the pitches that are where you need to swing. And with two strikes, you're not going down looking very much, if at all, and you're definitely going up and doing your best with two strikes to keep that at-bat going and still trying to get something out of it productive. So that fired me up watching that game. One thing that I think gets uh, messed up a lot with Coach 
coaching at all levels and definitely youth coaching is we don't always do the best job of identifying accurately those teams and players that we should look to borrow from when it comes to their skills or technique or strategies. That's a big deal. I see a lot of stuff pushed out there in the baseball community. For example, it's a pitcher that just came up from the minor leagues and he's doing X, Y, and Z and he's having some success. Hold on. Let's wait five years or 10 years and let's see where he's at at that time. Also, we may say that one team is doing something very well, but the rest of the teams that are in the playoffs are not doing that and they're still winning. So look for those things that all the teams that are winning or doing. It's not an exact science here, but it's definitely a much better approach than saying, well, Tampa Bay does X, but nobody else in the playoffs. The other eight, the other seven teams don't do X, but they're all successful. But Tampa Bay, Tampa Bay may be doing something that they're so far out in front of everybody else that maybe down the road, it's something we could all borrow from, but it's very likely that they're getting away with something. They're doing something that's not moving the needle and something that we should copy from so much as the things that all the teams that are successful in the play. That's why I like watching the playoffs. It's all the teams playing together that have had the most success. They've won the most games. They may not have the coolest workouts on Twitter. They might not have the fastest throwing pitchers, but they're winning the most games. And at the end of the day, that's all that matters is winning games at that level. For youth baseball, I think there's a different approach, subtly different. We want to keep winning games, of course. We want to win as many games as we are capable of winning. We want to play at our best level, but developing young people that become phenomenal adults is priority number one, along with then winning games comes right behind that. But don't get those two flip-flopped. At the major league level, they're getting paid to win games. They're getting paid to win games. My point is that's their livelihood. They are paid to win games. And in the playoffs, the teams that have won the most games are all playing together. And if you watched the 2020 playoffs, it was very, very, very evident that the teams that were in the playoffs were better at swinging at the right pitches and not swinging at the wrong pitches. And the Dodgers are phenomenal at it. I think their statistics are actually the best in baseball. Their statistics on that are the best. I think they chase, they swing at pitches out side of the strike zone less often than any team. If you look at the statistics and you line it up with the standings and you line it up with the playoff teams and you line it up with the order of the how the teams finished each year, there is a stark correlation between the teams that are so uber successful, the most successful, and their approach at the plate. In terms of, when I use the term approach at the plate, I am speaking about the pitches they are swinging. You can talk about timing. You can talk about the setup in the box. I'm not talking about that. When I talk about approach here, the hitters approach, the batting approach here on the 8020 Baseball Masterclass, I am discussing, I am referring to the hitter's ability to swing at the right pitches and take the pitches that are not hitters pitches with less than two strikes. And then with two strikes, do they protect the zone? Are they wildly protective of the zone? Do they chase a lot of pitches? That's not good. But do they protect the zone enough? And with two strikes, if the pitcher throws a meatball, do they swing hard at it? Are they already in default defensive mode? Are they already in a default defensive mode? Because there's a lot of meatballs with two strikes and you're wasting a lot of opportunity to hit a double. So I took those two things out of last night's game that I was watching between the Dodgers and the Colorado Rockies. And I tried to apply them here and share them out in a way that we can learn from those as youth coaches. One, how to deal with umpires, how to deal with umpires in the best way. And two, the hitting approach might be the number one thing we can coach, period, in terms of results. Now, speaking of results and to tie up that whole hitting approach thing there, kind of to wrap that up, results. The thing about 
about the hitting approach when you're coaching it, when you're teaching it. You have to really double down and focus on the process. You focus on the process and you coach the process. So when a hitter swings at a pitch that they should have swung at and they maybe they don't hit it, this is say like in batting practice or even in a game. If there's a meatball and there's less than two strikes and it's a meatball and well, if it's with two strikes also, but with less than two strikes, they might be a little more patient. So there's might be a little more likelihood that they take a pitch down the middle. With two strikes, there should be zero likelihood that they take a pitch down the middle, zero. But with less than two strikes, while in plan A, hitters might, because you're coaching them up to swing at pitches they can drive and pitches they can hit hard. And that might be a shot, like I said, up the middle, it might be a one hopper through the infield. It might be a ball that's a, a rocket line drive down the line. It may be off the wall, maybe a home run, something they can hit hard. They might, with less than two strikes, take a pitch that's down the middle more often than with two strikes. And here's what we need to do as coaches. You need to coach the process. Don't talk about the strikeout. Don't talk about taking a strike. Just say, hey, that's a pitch you should need to swing at. With less than two strikes, that's a pitch you're looking to drive. And or even give them more confidence and say, that's a pitch you can crush. You need to swing at that. That's a pitch you can crush. Now, even more helpful than that is coaching up the process of, hey, that was probably not a pitch you should have swung at, right? That's a pitch we should have let go. That's a pitch we should have taken. And so if you see a pitch that's on the knees, on the outside corner, it's a real pitcher's pitch. That's when we need to coach up our players and the process and say, hey, that is a pitch that we should have not swung at. That's a pitch we should have taken. And then if they also, if they swing and miss at a pitch, like I said earlier, if they swing and miss at a pitch or foul off a pitch that's right down the middle, you shouldn't, to me, when you're coaching youth players and even high school players, you should really look to coach the approach way before the swing for the most part, unless it's such a terrible swing that you definitely need to interject and work on things. But that should be something ironed out on a tee or on some other toss drills, things like that. When they're facing overhand pitching, whether it's on a machine or off a coach or off another player, really, 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 really want to spend most of your time working on which pitches they should swing at and which pitches they should not swing at. This is something that needs to get ingrained over and over again through repetition to get perfect out in the game when everything speeds up and, and you know the adrenaline starts pumping. Players need to know when that pitch is coming in, they need to know, hey, that's a pitch I'm swinging at or that's not a pitch I'm going to swing at. And they need to know the difference between the two plans, less than two strikes and the two strike plan to approach. So really focus on the process. Don't say, oh, you, you swung and missed at that or you should have hit that pitch. Say, that was a good pitch to swing at. That's a pitch you should swing at. Hey, good. All right. And then that's it. Move to the next pitch. Just because the hitter doesn't produce a result doesn't mean it was a pitch that they should not have swung at. So that's the point of this whole part right here about the process. Coach up the process. If they get down in the hole, oh, and two, because the pitcher made two phenomenal pitches, an inch off the plate at the knees, that's where you want to coach him up and say, hey, good pitcher's pitch. I've done that in games to my hitters. I've actually said right then, right after the, hey, that's a good pitcher's pitch. Good take. Good pitcher's pitch. Good take. You're not hiding it. The pitcher knows it's a good pitch. He knows where he put it on the outside corner, on the black, at the knees. He knows that's a good pitch. And you know, as a coach, the chances of doing anything with that pitch as a hitter are not very good. It's better to take the pitch and live to see another day, or in this case, another pitch, rather than try to do something with a very difficult pitch to handle and make an easy quick out. You could say, well, but you know, if you put it in play, they'll make it play the percentages here. Hold, just play the percentages here. There's a likelihood that you're going to, if you're first off, it's very unlikely, even at the major league level, if you've watched enough baseball, that pitchers are going to dart three pitches right on the corner at the knees or right where they want three straight times. It just very rarely happens. They make mistakes. They make mistakes each at bat. If the at bat goes long enough, usually if the hitter doesn't just swing at the first pitch, they're going to make a mistake. Typically, 
typically pitchers do not throw three strikes without one of them being a pitch that the hitter can handle decently well. Not only, I'm not saying they're going to drive it off the outfield fence, but it's a pitch that they can do something with. So coach the process when it comes to that and not so much the results. But when we look at the results to guide us, we talked about this process driven results oriented in a previous episode. This is exactly what I'm talking about. The process drives the hitting approach and the hitting plan, but the results tell us that the hitting plan is the biggest needle mover when it comes to hitting and probably the biggest needle mover when it comes to winning games. And like I said, a very close, if not a tie, a 1A, 1B situation is pitching and pitching command, multiple pitches. So those of you that have been around the 80-20 baseball podcast, the 80-20 baseball masterclass long enough, you know that we do talk about the paradigm, but we also get into specific details, specific action steps that you can take when you get out on the field. My goal when I set this and I envisioned this podcast when I developed and started building 80-20 baseball years ago, and for that matter, just designing a better way of coaching, an optimal way, not a totally different way, but optimizing some of the great strategies that are already out there that have been out there. My idea, my goal, my plan was to present this information in a paradigm shifting way, kind of an operating system approach, but also to provide specific examples and multiple specific examples of how this can be implemented out there on the field or in the batting cages or in the training facility or in the weight room or what have you. So that's really the idea that kind of drives the approach that we're taking. Speaking of approach, the approach we take here at the 80-20 Baseball Masterclass, it is, first off, what are the big needle movers based on the results? Then we reverse engineer those. And then we talk about how we can shape a paradigm so we win more, have better team cultures. What's the paradigm that's really the operating system that'll get us to those results? And also, what are those action steps, specific action steps? What do they look like out there on the field? A specific example of an operating system is my drill mastery guide. I've had a lot of coaches reach out. They've emailed me, Coach Bo at 8020baseball.com. Coach Bo, and that's Bo spelled like Bo Jackson the other day. And I've, I've mentioned this before because I more often than not, when I tell somebody Bo, they write B-E-A-U, like the French version. I've talked about that on this podcast. I've said, hey, it's Coach Bo at 8020baseball.com. It's Bo as in Bo Jackson or as in the American athlete version of Bo, which is almost always B-O, not the French way. My wife went to the Starbucks here down the hill here in Boise and we I she ran in to get the Starbucks and she came back out and you know we were sharing a drink and she just uses my name her name's I guess gets messed up even more than my name Griselda so her anyways she uses Bo and the cup says B-E-A-U right so that's why I say B-O coach Bo at 8020baseball.com you can reach out and get that drill mastery guide the drill mastery guide is an operating system for designing high quality highly productive fun drills for your teams, your players, anytime, anywhere, for any level, with any type of equipment, any type of need. It's an operating system, so it's much more malleable. Do I give drill examples in the drill mastery guide? No, because I'm trying to teach you how to fish, not just give you a fish. I don't want you to eat dinner tonight and have one drill for one thing, and they need to keep coming back for drills to fit your needs. And a lot of times it'll be, hey coach, I need a drill for this. Okay, what's your facility look like? Well, you know, I got this, I got that. I only got one coach. I only got nine players. Um, I don't have an L screen. We're out on this field. Oh, we got one batting cage. We got one tunnel. I, got, I don't have a pitching machine. I got, Everybody's situation is unique or 
most situations are not the same. So if you take any drill from any coach that's given out drills, I can find you for every 10 coaches, I can find five coaches or five teams that drill was shared with that it won't work because they don't have X, Y, and Z. It doesn't fit their environment. It doesn't fit their level. It doesn't fit their equipment. It doesn't fit their monetary resources. A big thing is I see drills all the time from major leaguers or coaches that sharing stuff out there that are, they want to be like professional coaches. They want to come across as this like advanced coach. And I'm thinking that's not something I would waste any time with on a youth team. Zero zilch. So the drill mastery guide is an operating system change. It is a paradigm shifter. All right, I'm gonna finish up here with one quick thought on these wristbands for giving signs. We've broken down, or I've discussed on this podcast, a great way to teach players how to remember the signs and how not to miss any, if possible, at all. And we've shared some strategies in terms of how to do that on this podcast. But I know these wristbands that pitchers are using now, hitters are using, catchers were the original position that used these wristbands. Coaches would yell out three numbers or hold up three numbers with their fingers and the catcher would look at their wristband. I've used these out there for years. I'm a big fan of these. I think coaches that don't like having a wristband on the hitter, the runners, I just like, hey, if it doesn't work for you because you want to keep baseball exactly like it was in 1961, that's on you. I'm all for making baseball better, not just to change it, make it better. There's a lot of things I wouldn't change, but there's a lot of things I would look to optimize. Why would we not want to optimize things in life? And for the 80-20 baseball group of coaches, we're always looking for a competitive advantage that a lot of coaches are sitting out there either missing or just too cool for school on it. So these wristbands, I like the idea of the wristbands. I like the idea of the team all having wristbands, the runners you hold out, you know, and you could even get it down. I believe you could even get it down to just two numbers for base running. You could just say, hey, 26, 26. And on your clipboard, you have 26 is a straight steal or a drag bunt or whatever. I'm not a big fan of having a lot of signs from the coaches. I'm definitely not. I should say you need to have signs consistently if you're going to use them because you can't just use them obviously when you need them because then it's a big tip off, right? It's kind of like playing poker and the only time you ante up and keep raising the pot is when you have a good hand. That's not good. You got to bluff, right? You have to bluff as a coach. So you have to give signs frequently, even though there's nothing on, but I am not a big fan of total control of every single part of the game as a coach when it comes to the game. I'm a huge fan of controlling and, and building a phenomenal practice and training environment. So when the players get out to the field, they're much more automated. They're much more on autopilot because they've been coached up so well during practice. The more a coach is coaching during a game, if the more I see a coach coaching during the game, the more I believe they need to start coaching in practice. They need to start coaching up their players more in practice. There's a reason coaches like Phil Jackson were so stoic and are so stoic on the sideline because they coach their players up so much during practice and in the off season and things like that, that they don't feel the need to have to coach during the game. They know they've put their prep in and their work in. And also at the end of the day, the players don't want to be bossed around, ordered around all the time. And it starts to dilute your message. You talk so much, you coach everything, every component all the time, every play, you have something to say, you start to dilute your message and players are going to tune you out whether you know it or not, they are. And in this particular case, when it comes to calling plays and things like that, I think us coaches need to be very careful in over coaching. Let the players 
players figure some things out on their own. And in baseball, let them swing away a little bit more than maybe you think they should. It doesn't always have to be a controlled offense or a controlled defense. Let them pick off sometimes when they want to pick off or not pick off. A healthy level of autonomy never hurts anybody and it never hurts the growth. In fact, it helps the growth of those people we are mentoring, in this case, our players. So I'm not a big fan of coaches having a thousand plays and a thousand this and that. I think that they're very controlling coaches out there that want to they want to have pickoffs here and 17 first and third offenses and 46 bunt defenses and all this and they're always putting on an offensive play this that and the other it's all about them controlling the game and I've always said if that's your deal you would be much better off going and being an offense or defensive coordinator probably an offensive coordinator in football because then you can do that you can call a play every single down in baseball you don't want to call a play every single pitch you don't even want to call them every single inning but if you have wristbands you can do this quickly and accurately when you do want to put something on and I do think those wristbands I don't sell them so I'm not promoting anything here for any compensation but I do like the idea of speeding up the game and more accuracy somebody says what are the wristbands well the signs are more accurate and it's fast the signs are more accurate so you're telling me you're going to speed up the game coach Bo you want to speed up the game and have a higher accuracy rate ah oh, come on coach right so that's it's like yeah of course yeah you can do something faster and more accurate <laughs> sign me up every single time anything in life if i can do it faster and more accurate it's a done deal slam dunk sign me up let's go all right you guys are awesome the feedback i'm getting and the amount of listeners for the podcast it just it fires me up and it motivates me to keep putting out these podcasts this podcast is not supposed to be for everybody that's not the point but i can tell by the feedback i'm getting from you that the coaches that are here and get it and they get the reason that the structure and the purpose and the reason and where i'm coming from with this the intent of this 80 20 baseball masterclass. those of you that are getting it you get it and you know where i'm coming from and you know exactly why you're here and what I'm trying to do with it and what you're trying to do with the information that I am sharing in this podcast. And for that, I'm thankful for all of you. Keep giving me the great feedback. Leave a positive review if you're liking the show email me coachbo8020baseball.com, get you that drill mastery guide, or email me if you have something you'd like me to discuss here on the podcast, email to me. Doesn't mean I'm going to discuss it. It's got to fit within the parameters of what this podcast is designed for, but for most of the feedback and most of the suggestions or questions, I should say, that I have received from all you great coaches, most of them have gotten airtime here on the podcast. All right, that wraps up episode 72. Next week, I'm going to have a tip for motivating your team, motivating your players to step it up a level, to increase the pep in their step. Also, we are going to discuss what we can learn from a baseball game that I was at 20 years ago and a home run ball that I caught off the bat of Gary Sheffield. I'm going to tie that in with a tip that we can all use. And that has nothing to do with hitting, but we will get into that next week. And also, we will discuss what we can learn from a player that had two things he did phenomenal. He was the Southern California Player of the Year in 1997, went on to have a good career at the University of Texas and play some pro ball. I played with him in high school. I should say I watched him play in high school. He was older and he was a phenomenal player, Southern California Player of the Year, All-American. And I will talk about the two things he did at the plate, the two biggest needle movers that got him to that level of success. So we'll get into that next week in episode 73. And until then...
Take care of yourselves. Take care of your families. Take care of that baseball community, your team. Make it more fun. Make it a better place. Take this information out to the field and use it. Take it out there. Use it. Stick with it. I promise it will yield better results in each and every area in which you apply it. And until next week, adios. This has been the 8020 Baseball Masterclass. Take it to the field.